0: Welcome to Let's Talk Land, a weekly land education talk show devoted to learning about land and farms, buying and selling, ownership, and especially for real estate agents and realtors. Learn from the experts, guys. This is free land education. Hi, my name's Lou Jewell. I'm an accredited land consultant with United Country Real Estate, Sutton Properties, along with my co-host, Teresa Martin, this morning. Good morning, Teresa. Hey, Lou, how are you? I'm doing great. Are you ready for a really exciting show? I'm ready. You're going to like this one.
1: Okay, good. I like a ball.
0: Yeah, I know you do. (laughs) Buying or selling homes, Land or Farms in western Piedmont, North Carolina, or Southern Virginia, just give us a shout. Hey, we'll help you out. Our office is at 102 East Main Street next to BB&T Bank in downtown. Mountain, North Carolina, and our company website's www.all.com. SuttonProperties.com. That's A L L S U T T O N, Properties plural, dot com All of our shows are dedicated to the Realtors Land Institute staff and members, and our national site is www.rliland.com. Hey, I want you to listen to me. If you're buying or selling land, go to that website because you will find one of our 1,600 members nationwide and about 500 accredited uh, land consultants. To have the designation like i carry uh, we are trained to help you save money if you're buying and to make more money if you're selling because we understand the land game hey we'd like to thank our sponsor landhub.com buying or selling land land hub is the place to be teresa our guest this morning is jacob law welcome jacob
2: hey glue how's it going
0: doing great where are you calling from
2: Calling from Granville County, North Carolina today. I'm sitting on a pretty farm beside my tractor and bush hog. Took a little break from some soil samples and prepping some areas for hunting season.
0: You have the hardest job. We're going to talk about that. Uh, We may need to change our vocation here, Teresa. (laughs) Can you train us, Jacob? Can we uh, come on here and get us trained up?
2: I can definitely put you on a tractor for a while.
0: (laughs) First vehicle I ever drove was a 1951 Red Belly when I was about eight years old, seven or eight. So, um, you
2: probably still have the 10 you got
0: on that thing. Uh, well, it's still in the family. We have 900 acres up in Surrey County that great-granddaddy and granddaddy bought 18 farms between 1909 and 1929 with 10 children. And and uh, it's all in the family, every inch of it. So it's uh, It's a heritage farm.
2: Cool. That's great.
0: So you're an NC State grad, go, go pack, and uh, got an associate degree in ag business management and then a bachelor's degree in ag science, and of course your license is a prescribed burn control uh, contractor for the North Carolina uh, Forestry Service, and of course a realtor with uh, one of my favorite organizations, the National Land Company, and uh, you guys got it going. uh, uh. It's a lot of the RLI members got together and, and we'll, uh, we actually did a whole show on National Land Realty uh, and uh, go back and refer to that. So you were born and raised in Raleigh, North Carolina, and you spent your childhood hunting and fishing with your dad uh, from Roanoke River down striped Bass to the Watauga River for trout to the eastern part of the state for, for ducks to the Piedmont for whitetails and turkeys. Uh, and you chase them anywhere you can see turkeys. So... Um, What a what a break! What a what a background! What a what a heritage to come from! So um, now your goal is to help assist landowners maximize their investment in recreational properties to their full potential. And Teresa, you know, with your experience now as a landlady, uh, you know, people invest in farms; they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. So that's what this show is going to be about today, because Jacob's got it going on, Uh, and we want to learn. Uh, what land management and wildlife is, or land and wildlife management, sorry, and uh, just a, just a uh, description of it as wildlife management is the art and science of reaching goals by uh, manip- manipulating or maintaining wildlife habitats and populations. So, Jacob, we're going to turn the show over to you. Uh, tell us about what you do and how you got into it and some of the nuances, and uh, we want to learn about this
2: good deal well i'm excited first off i just want to say thank you guys for having me on the show I had a lot of reputable folks on here so i i feel really privileged to be here today uh i've always enjoyed being outside it's kind of what i grew up doing my whole life i thought it was normal to go hunting or fishing all day saturday up until i was about 15 or 16 years old uh I'm an only child. My dad's got the hunting bug just as bad as I do, and that's just what we did every weekend. There was no discussing it. It was just go to bed early because we were going somewhere the next day. Um, And I kind of have always had a passion for that my whole childhood. And it was about my senior year of high school. You know, everybody kind of goes through a point where they're trying to figure out what they want to do, and I always knew that I enjoyed equipment. Land and being outside, so I figured I'd try to figure out a way to tie all those together. And I had been hunting with my father and a group of guys from Faith of Christian Sportsmen in Raleigh out to South Dakota, pheasant hunting a couple times. And I had made a pretty close relationship with the lodge owner's son. And they have a big pheasant hunting operation, but at the end of the day, they're farmers and ranchers. and I look forward to spending time with the owner's son around the farm just as much as I did going hunting. And so my senior year, I called him up and asked him if I could come work for him for a summer and try to figure out if there was a place for me in this world. And uh, he actually said that they had just hired two guys out of Texas, but his cousin had an even bigger farm down the road so not knowing him from Adam, I got on a plane and flew out to South Dakota and worked for him for a summer, fell in love with it, and ended up going back there for the next three summers. And I'd leave a, I'd leave a week after my last exam in college, I'd fly out there, and I'd work seven days a week for 12 weeks, and then I'd fly home. And they took care of me, it was a wonderful family, it was two brothers worked tremendously hard I owe my work ethic to them and it was about a two-hour drive home or drive from the farm to the airport and it was that two-hour drive that the older brother and I would go back and forth on what I thought I should be compensated for for my 12 weeks or my summer's work and he'd write me a check and I'd fly back home I would go back to school and when I was at school I always worked a little bit and did a little bit of guiding bear hunts down at the coast and helping folks out on their properties, uh, all the while hunting as much as I could. And then it was my junior year at state. There was a another kid in the class with me. I kind of knew him through the grapevine, and our dads knew each other. He said, hey, one of my dad's friends has got several properties, and he's looking for somebody to help him manage them all. He said, Would you be interested? I'll plug you in with him. And I said, Yeah, it's worth talking to him. Let's see what's going on. So, went and sat down with him. He said he's got several properties that he wants to manage for wildlife and timber, and he was looking more or less for somebody to do some bush hogging and some food plots. And so, I ended up doing that my last summer at State. And after I graduated he offered me a full-time job doing the same thing and i did that for three years all i did every day was make three different farms he owned just as wildlife rich as possible while maintaining the timber value of the properties and so that included building road systems uh controlled burns food plots and uh just a lot of work outside and i learned a lot and those three farms were each in a different county and amounted to a little over 2,500 acres. And I learned a lot, and I had plenty to do.
0: It sounds like it. Hey, by the way, I want people, if you're not driving, <laughs> to go to uh, Jacob Lyle's website, which is www.wildflowhabitat, uh, W-I-L-D-F-L-O-W, habit, I'm sorry, dot .com, and... Uh, you can follow us along here because uh, we're going to be talking about his site and all the different uh, services that uh, that his company provides. And uh, I also mentioned, uh, Jacob, you're a licensed real estate agent, and you're with a national franchise uh, that, that uh, I totally admire. Uh, so um, anyway, uh, go to that website. We'll mention it a couple times during the show. So that's a heck of a beginning. So how did you transition into starting your company?
2: So it got to a point where the gentleman that I was working for, his whole network was folks that liked to hunt and fish as well, and it kind of got around town that I was doing a, a good job for him, and it really enjoyed it. And uh, some of his friends were getting me to help them on their properties on the weekends, and it got to a point where I was just working uh, quite a bit, and was loving every minute of it, and I just kind of sat down with him one day and uh, told him I thought I was ready to, to take the next step and that I would help him as much as I could. Uh, and now today he's still one of my biggest clients. I trained. He's got a full-time guy. I trained him up, and uh, I still help them out quite a bit. The farm I'm on right now, ironically enough, is one of those farms um, that I kind of cut my teeth on. And then got to a point where I was doing this part-time, trying to build up uh, full capacity and figure that if real estate was going to be another avenue that I always wanted to kind of venture into, there was a couple times where the gentleman I worked for, we would go look at a track together and try to look at the wildlife and uh, timber value and opportunities all in one, and I really enjoyed that. It was it was an opportunity to start from scratch, to actually select your project. And uh, I knew real estate was another way to continue to do that. So while I was building my company, just a one-man band, I'd hire friends from time to time to help out. I went to school at night, got my real estate license, got linked up with National Land, which is nothing but a phenomenal company. They've been great to work with and work together with and uh it was 2018 i just kind of jumped off the deep end and went full time into this and my wonderful girlfriend helped me along the way she helped me do control burns. she helped me wash tractors uh and we kind of built this thing together so i can't take all the credit
0: well you better keep you better uh, keep her
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: Then, like a good partner. And
2: she's been wonderful. but So we dived into it full-time. I think it was October of 2018 and uh, had some had some really good success on both ends. Helped some folks find some land, helped some folks sell some land. And uh, most of the time when I'm riding around helping somebody buy a track of land, we're kind of piecing the puzzle together before they even buy it. And if they are, if they do buy it, most of the time I can help them turn their dreams and their goals for that property into a reality. And so a lot of times what we'll do is we'll, we'll help them. We'll take their goals, whether it's, they want a a really good duck hunting property or they want a very pretty place to, entertain customers for business, but also maybe have a shooting range on that property or ATV trails, Um, whatever their goals are, we kind of take those goals and take the property that those goals are to be included on. And we basically write a prescription. And then once we write that prescription, we execute uh, that prescription based on their budget and their goals. And uh, we've had a lot of fun with it. One of the one of my favorite things is to see a piece of property and and do some hard work to it and then see the wildlife benefit from it. Um, You know, controlled fire is one of the greatest things that you can do to attract. I've had multiple customers kind of have what they would call a pipe dream of having wild quail on their property and we were able to do some management projects and timber stand improvement and controlled fire regiment, and they're sending me videos of quail with one on fence posts. Wow. And uh, so had a lot of fun with it.
0: Well, it sounds like, Teresa, this is, uh, you're going to learn a lot today. Uh, and, and we kind of do the same thing uh, uh, as we look at land and customers. We like to educate our clients because uh, there's so much to land, as you know. Uh, and uh, this is a very important part of it, uh, and uh, uh, we'd love to know you better and, and help you out. Hey, our guest today is uh, Jacob Lyle. This is Let's Talk Land. Our sponsor is Landhub.com. Looking for to buy or sell land? Landhub.com previews thousands of properties nationwide.
1: Jacob, the last thing we talked about, you were getting into the controlled barn. Uh, I'm just curious how you got into doing controlled barns.
2: Why I'd like so, to know why. the the main reason how i got into control burns was when i was working for that private landowner we had uh we had some folks from the state we had some timber professionals we we had other folks coming in and helping us piece together the puzzle because there were some bigger tracts of land and uh one of the needs that they told us about was prescribed fire and i i knew about it um but not enough to be dangerous yet and basically the the benefit of controlled burning or prescribed fire it kind of imagine a a stand of pine trees whether that's uh kind of like a natural stand of pines or a plantation stand of pines and uh you know what's in there pine straw and pine trees It's a monoculture, and there's things that you can do to that monoculture to diversify them. And at the end of the day, the best thing for wildlife is diversification, diversification of species in an area. So you can take a pine stand and make it more than just a stand of pines and pine straw. You can make it to where there's food and cover for wildlife, specifically uh, turkey, quail, and deer. Everything benefits from it. Songbirds benefit from it there's some endangered species that benefit from it and you can kind of you can kind of swing it one of two ways you can do kind of a general wildlife burn where it's going to benefit a little bit of everyone or you can do more of a species specific style burn but either way the burn comes after one thing before that and that's timber stand improvement so if you have a 15 year stand of pines that hasn't been thinned yet it's really tight and it's not letting the sunlight hit the forest floor that's what you need first you can go burn a stand like that get rid of all the litter on the ground make it to where you know if lightning strikes in there it's not going to be much fuel for a wildfire um, and it'll clean it up a little bit but if you really want the best benefits the best thing to do is go in there and remove some of those trees and we try to time that perfectly with our timber uh management plans you've got to thin a track uh let's thin that track and if the landowner is okay with thinning it a little bit harder then we're going to open up that much more sunlight on the forest floor so that's step one once you've done that then step two is your prescribed fire and what we'll do is in a perfect world there's already a path to where we could get a side-by-side or atv uh around that stand. If not, then we're gonna do a fire break or a fire line. That can be as simple as a tractor with a disc on the back, turning up the dirt, fire can't travel uh across the dirt. Or we'll take a bulldozer, make a nice bladed line, or sometimes we'll even get the forest service to come in. And they've got some really special equipment to where they can do a fire line through a, a mature stand of timber that you wouldn't even try to ride a four through um and when they're done you can ride a 4 through it uh but what we're doing is we're making it where that fire can't go outside of the area that we're going to introduce fire to once we've got that done then we're going to do our controlled burn most of the time we're doing this uh around the first of the year you want to wait till all the leaves fall off the trees so we're we're past fall at january 1 and we're past The conclusion of deer season most of the tracks we're doing this on are either leased by deer hunters or enjoyed by deer hunters the the owner of the property is a hunter themselves and so most of the time we get started january 1 and uh what we'll do is we're we're lighting fire to that that stand of timber that area most of the time if the wind's coming out of the north we're setting fire on the south end of it that fire slowly burning into the wind if you were to light it on the north end with the north wind, it's going to feed off that oxygen, and it's going to push it through really fast. So we're controlling it by doing a backfire. It's slowly just going into the into the wind there. And what it's going to do is it's going to move really slow, which means it's going to be really hot where it's at versus just swooping through there really fast. And it's removing all the leaf litter off the ground. It, uh, I'm sure we've all seen where a uh, track that's been thinned, is starting to grow up with sweet gums quite a bit at least in my neck of the woods it's going to kill those sweet gums it's going to knock everything back and it's going to remove all that litter on the ground and a lot of times i'll tell people when i'm explaining it to them if you got a flower bed in your front yard you're putting mulch pine straw down to keep the weeds from growing right you just want the flowers in there well in the woods or in a block of pines that pine straw is doing the same thing. It's not letting native species grow underneath that forest floor. And in order to do that, you've got to allow sunlight to hit the forest floor. And we uh, we achieve that by doing a thinning or stember, uh, timber stand improvement. So we've removed some of the tree canopy, the space between the tops of the trees, to allow the sunlight to hit the forest floor. And then we're removing that mulch pine straw that litter layer on the forest floor with the controlled fire all right so once that's done and the control burns over you're going to start to get some rain on that area and you're getting sunlight on that area and you're promoting native grasses and forbs to grow and as soon as you sh- as soon as that happens you're going to see all kinds of little green things starting to poke up and all those little green things starting to poke up are food Tons and tons of food. You can almost have just as much food on an acre of woods that's had a timber stand improvement and a prescribed burn run through it as you could if I went and planted the prettiest one acre food plot you've ever seen. But you're maximizing the potential of that acre because you've got wood growing. A lot of times that's your investment. That's, that's half the reason why you've got the property in the first place. That's what helps all this come together. And And then that area starts to grow it's browse for deer it's uh it's browse for rabbits it's starting once it gets a couple months old it's cover for those animals another great uh benefit of prescribed fire is if it's got a bunch of ticks in that area it's cooking them it's killing them it's getting rid of them and the turkeys and quail come in there and eat them uh there's been many times where i like to ride around a track that i've burned before i go home i, I stay there Until the very end, the fire's out. It might still be smoking a little bit, but I always try to ride around and check out the whole area before I leave. Um, It helps me sleep a little better at Mm -hmm. night. And a lot of times I'm kicking turkeys and quail, if there's already some quail in the area, out of that burn area. I've got pictures of quail and turkeys in the smoke, bugging, eating all the stuff that got cooked up in there. Um, But let's fast forward about three to six months after that fire, we burning it in the winter and then spring green up comes and that just by the middle or the end of turkey season it's just as lush and green and vegetated as you could ever imagine and everything growing in there is benefiting uh the quail and the deer and the turkeys and the rabbits and the birds everything else and it looks gorgeous so it's kind of a win-win the biggest question is is it safe to burn in that area and some places we get calls and we go to and it's not safe. You're, and it's not, a, it's not a factor of if uh, the fire, it's more the smoke, smoke management. We create a lot of smoke when we burn these areas. And if there's a development half a mile downwind from that area or a highway or a hospital, something that doesn't need a lot of smoke um it can be unsafe and one of the biggest factors to us is wind we can take a track that might have a development on the south end but it's clear on the north end and we know we can only burn that track on a south wind um so that's that's the there's a lot of work that goes into a burn before we do it just to make sure it's going to be safe knock on wood I haven't ever had a fire go anywhere I didn't want it to go. A lot of times, if you put proper fire lines in, there's not an issue. Um, but that's really the best benefits of controlled burning. One of the one of the other things that we do sometimes is we'll burn a little bit more into the growing season. That's called a spring burn or a, a growing season burn. So what we'll do is instead of burning in january 1 we might burn towards somewhere in april or may when that spring green up has happened and the benefit of that is when you burn in january or the winter what we call the dormant season it kills everything that's growing to the ground but it doesn't kill the roots necessarily so if you've got a lot of sweet gums in there or undesirables what we'll do is the first time we ever burn it we like to burn in the winter because there's so much fuel and it's the safest time to burn and frankly when it's hot out it's kind of rough being around a really hot fire Um, so if if a track's never been burned we'll burn it in the dormant season and then we'll come back a year to two years based on how much fuel has come down and then we'll do what's called a growing season burn there's less fuel on the ground so it's not as much smoke it's not as hot but what it does in the growing season is it'll actually kill those plants down to the roots so virtually what some people might use herbicides for to kill a bunch of sweet gums in a stand of pines we can do it with fire sometimes and it's a little bit more beneficial it's a little bit more economical and uh, a lot of times when you do those growing season burns that's when the end result is the kind of like what you imagine a Georgia quail woods or Georgia quail plantation. You've got knee-high, waist-high grasses and then pine trees. So you you can venture past just your conventional burn to kind of create the outcome that you want. If you just want to knock it back and you want to make as much forage as possible strictly for deer, I would do almost only dormant season burns because even if it's a sweet gum, when it's two to six inches tall, it's food for a deer. And they, it's good food. And, uh, but if you want to have a pretty quail plantation look, and your, your focus of, of the property is more quail and turkeys, one or the other, then we'll, we'll, uh, do growing season burns. And we try to burn it every two years. And if we've got a hundred acre square of pine trees, we'll cut that 100 acre square into four 25 acre squares and we'll make sure we're burning one of those every year every year to two years and we're diversifying that that much further to where we've got different stages of burn tracks and when you get that far into it that's when you're really seeing a huge difference that's when you're seeing quail on farms that you've owned for 15 years that you've never seen quail on
0: that's pretty exciting do you get the you have to get a burn permit I guess to you get the, the local fire department obviously they're they uh, with a burn permit they know that that's uh, events happening uh, is that part of your steps too?
2: so the I kind of started out with the benefit to fire but now I'll talk a little bit about how I got into it and uh, ironically enough like I said, I'm sitting in my truck beside this barn. There's a flock of turkeys walking across the path in front of me right now, six or seven of them. But uh, we were trying to, to implement this kind of work on the farm I was working on full-time. And I didn't know anything about burning. The landowner didn't know anything about burning other than we knew it was good and we needed somebody to help us do it. And uh, the Forest Service will actually conduct control burns for you you have to pay them to do it but they'll do it for you the it's just it's not that simple at the end of the day because the days that are perfect for burning which is dry days with a little bit of wind we're looking at the relative humidity because the humidity uh influences how much moisture is in the fuel And the days that it's perfect for us to do a controlled burn are the days that the Forest Service gets calls about wildfires. And they have to go to those calls. It's not just the fire department. They have wildfire and wildland firefighting gear. Uh, Fire department definitely helps. But if you've got a fire on the side of the road that's already two or three acres large, the Forest Service is your best chance of getting that fire suppressed and so we got to a point where we were trying to do these controlled burns and we were having and i'm not trying to bash the forest service at all i I love the forest service work really close with them and they're happy to see people like me take it upon themselves to get to a point where they can do these controlled burns because they've got so much on their plate they already have to do they have a really hard job and they have a lot that they have to get done um and so we got to a point where uh, we were we had stuff ready to burn, but it wasn't getting burned. And I I told the guy I was working for, I said, "Hey, if you'll kind of help me get to a point where um, I can take all the classes and and learn how to do this myself, I'll do it." Uh, and he was he was good with that plan. And so the the Forest Service puts on a prescribed burn certification course and basically what that certification course is is it's a course that uh, allows you the certification to conduct controlled burns on your own property and actually uh, a lot of information that gets put at you in two days they do one or two of these a year across the state I did mine right by URE National Forest. Troy, North
0: Carolina. Um, hey, our guest. But, I, I got to interrupt you. Sorry, Jacob. Our guest today is Jacob Love. This is Let's Talk Land. I'd like to thank our sponsor, LandHub.com. Looking to sell land? Try LandHub.com.
1: There's a lot more to this than I ever thought, and we were talking off-air about some a lot, a lot of different things that that are beneficial and things that are scary and, and and the way that you do this and all this information. It's just amazing to me all the information that there, there is. And, and I want to remind everybody to go to wildflowhabit.com to Jacob's website and, and they can follow along with this information. But the thing I'm wondering here is you've been talking about starting all these fires and that, I mean, fire is so unpredictable. But you can predict it, it sounds like. Like, how do you know what trees are are going to, like, why do the trees not burn up, you know, and, and how do you, how do you manage that?
2: So, it is, uh, it's it's one of those things, I think one of the reasons why I enjoy it so much is you're always learning, um, I think that's another reason why so many people enjoy the outdoors hunting specifically, is you never master it, but you can get really, really good at it, but you always learn from it, and fire is one of those things, but, uh, it is, it can be scary. There's days where I, I myself even get a little bit scared, but um, if you can control it, the best way to control the fire is to know your weather parameters between your relative humidity, your wind direction, your wind speed, and, and your fuel levels and your trees in the area that you're burning. Pine trees, loblolly pine. Uh, what we see mostly in my area is, you know everybody's gone up to a pine tree and pulled some bark off of it it's thick it can be you know an inch or more thick sometimes uh 2 inches on a big tree but that's almost like a armor for pine trees when you're burning and as long as you don't imagine a 15 year old pine tree and you're you're on the ground looking up at it and it's got that green top as long as you don't burn all the pine needles off the top of that tree, it's very highly that there's not it's not going to have any problems. It's not going to be hurt. It, it might look like, you know, you've got black 10 foot up the trunk of it. That doesn't hurt anything. It doesn't hurt the tree. If you get a fire hot enough to get rid of all the pine needles at the very top of that tree, it's going to be hurt or potentially kill it. I never had that happen.
1: So you can control the heat.
2: You can control the heat, correct. You can control the heat. Some areas I want it a little bit hotter and there's certain ways I'll do that. Work in the wind, you know, I might I might let that fire back into the wind ten or twenty feet. Once that fire is burned across an area we call it black. The fire can't travel over that black area because it's already consumed all the fuel. So if we've already got a 10-foot wide dist road, let's say a sand or dirt road that's been disted up, and then we got 20 foot of black, we got 40 foot between an area that can burn and an area that's burning in the opposite direction. And then I can, at that point, a lot of times I feel comfortable, depending on what our management objectives are. If we've got a lot of three- or four-year-old sweet guns that we want to knock out, I'll go on the upwind side and light it and let it get really hot and crazy and run through there really fast and it kind of is almost like a war zone almost and uh it'll cook everything in its path and then when it hits that black where it was where we started it ends it just runs out of fuel and it's over um but there's certain areas where you can't do that hardwood trees white oak uh, red oak something like that they they are a little bit more susceptible to fire than a pine tree is. Now you can still burn in hardwood tracks and uh I've got a project right now where we did a really heavy thinning on a hardwood track on Carr Lake to make some real pretty quail woods and uh try to do a quail habitat restoration project on it, make a oak savanna. Um, and we're gonna make sure we only burn that that area in the winter time. The the trees are a little dormant. Uh, the cold air and cold weather and cold dirt, you know, kind of helps protect it from that fire. Um, so those growing season burns I was talking about are more catered towards pine tree areas. Or if somebody is okay with potentially losing a couple hardwoods here or there, if it's a mixed stand that's mostly pine or something, we'll still burn that kind of in the spring. Um
0: Topography. But, Tell us about topography because, you know, North Carolina's mountains and plains and coast. So, and, and the United States, I'm sure this uh, process is uh, done throughout the country except maybe out West uh, where they have other. Yeah, topography
2: makes a big it, it has a great impact. And uh, I am currently, I live in Franklin County. Uh, it's about 30, 40 minutes north of Raleigh now. And uh, the News, the Tar River, runs through this area it's predominantly flat it's got some hills um but nothing like where you guys are at and uh i do a lot of burns around the river and there's some big bluffs by that river and fire will travel uphill faster and so you have to take that into consideration that's where a lot of these fires out west or even some of the fire forest fires we've had in the in the mountains Uh, Here in North Carolina, if that fire is going uphill, you imagine the heat is moving up. Well, when you're traveling up a slope and it's moving up, it's just going straight into the fuel right above it. And it can be really intense, especially if the wind's behind it. And uh, sometimes that's where these forest fires can be so devastating. They start traveling up a hill like that, and they get some serious speed. And then when it gets to the top of that hill, it's almost like it's almost like you're rolling a ball up the hill. When it gets to the top, it jumps, and that fire can jump across a road or a path into another area. And now you've got a fire where you don't want it, um, or a forest fire that's continuously growing. Um, so we really have to take topo in, into consideration, but we just alter that by making sure we're we're burning um, with the right wind. If, if you accidentally get some wind going uphill behind that fire, you can you can have a bad day. Um, one of the techniques we'll use a lot of times on a slope is a strip fire. And what that means is instead of us just running a fire on one side uh, and letting it slowly go up that hill, we'll go do one line at the bottom of the hill, go 20, 30 yards above it, and do another one and we'll stagger lines all the way up that hill and fire burns to fire and so those lines will burn into each other instead of just having one fire that can progress up that hill at a drastic rate we make sure that we've got a bunch of little fires that once a fire runs into another fire it can't go anywhere else because it's already burned everything on each side of each fire line um so most of the time when we're burning, you know, that's what I'm saying. There's so much work. I have to go spend a lot of time on a track that I've never burned before, before I'm going to burn it. And a lot of times my guys that help me out, I have them come with me, and we just we get a really good feel for the property before we burn it, whether it's that morning or if it's, you know, when the customer first brings us in and asks us if we can burn for them. We, we have to get familiar with that track before we set fire to it. Uh, we'll spend a lot of time looking at it in person and then we'll go home and pull it up on the computer and we'll look at everything in a mile radius around it, um, for smoke, for smoke and, uh, and other areas that we, we want to take note of before we set fire to it. Um, but one of the kind of piggybacking where, where we were at earlier, we got to a point where we were wanting to burn these tracks that I was working on. And we weren't getting it done in the time frame that we wanted. So I contacted our local uh, county ranger with the Forest Service, and he kind of knew of our situation. He was very familiar with the track, uh, knew us pretty well. And uh, I just said, hey, can we try to get to a point where maybe I can do some of this on my own? And uh, he was more than willing to help me. So I took the class, got certified. That allowed me the certification to burn just on the track that I worked on um, I couldn't just go burn for anybody and then after I did that for a year or two, the next step is to get burn boss level to be a burn boss uh, you have to be a burn boss to go do burns for other people and what that includes is you have to write up a burn management plan which basically is something that you share with a county ranger saying here's a track of property Here's what it has, and here's how I'm going to burn it, and here's why I'm going to do it in a safe way. And you identify everything in a mile radius of it. They review it. They make sure everything looks good. And then you conduct a burn in front of them on that track. They don't help you at all. They just kind of judge you. Now, if if something breaks out, they're there to help you too, um, to control it. Well, the first time I ever did that was on a track um, on the property I was working on, and about 15 minutes after we got started, he got a fire call. He said, man, I've got to go try to put this fire out or at least go look at it. You're on your own now, and this is the real deal. And if there was ever a test, this is it. And uh, that kind of scared me straight, and, and uh, a negative outcome was just not an option. So we did a good job on it. He came back later that day, looked at it, said he, you know, Liked how we did everything, and he sent up all the paperwork that was required up the chain of command with the Forest Service, and there it was. I had my burn boss license, and and I could do it for other folks. Um, and the the Forest Service, a lot of times, will give my name and business info to other landowners because they enjoy burning. Um, but like I said earlier, a lot of times that they they have almost In my area, it can be sometimes five or six years until they can get to a track and burn it for someone because they have a running list that they're working on. And depending on the year, if it's really wet or if it's really dry and they have calls, they've got to go attend to those. And so they are glad to see more people um, doing burns on their own or having someone like myself come do it for them.
1: So what's the class that you take to do burns for your, for your own land?
2: So it is the, it's called burn certification course. If you go to the North Carolina Forest Service website, most states are like this, too. Uh, you go to a tab somewhere that says burns or prescribed fire, and a lot of times they do one to two two-day weekend classes. It's different location every time. And you can take that class. It's, uh, COVID kind of impacted that a little bit, I believe. Um, I don't know if they've done one in a while. I know when COVID first came around, they kind of put the brakes on everything. Um, but I do know that when things are moving smoothly, they do at least one to two classes a year, um, just about every six months, roughly. And you can sign up for that class. I would suggest after you take that class, you still have somebody that has done some burns on their own help you. I don't have a problem um, if they're in my area. If their ultimate goal is to get to a point where they can burn themselves, I have some customers like that where I've helped them the first two or three times. And then they'll just call me and be like, what do you think about burning today? What do you think with the weather? And I'll tell them my two cents about it. Or if they want to run the show and they just want me and my guys to come to have more people on deck, um, we do that too. But if, if you're burning the same areas, if you've got one farm and you got two or three different areas on that same farm that you're burning, um, you can, you can more than likely get to a point where you can handle that yourself. It's kind of the burning different tracks, um, that you haven't burned before that, that, can
0: be kind of intense. You you just made uh, Teresa Narsness, You know that?
1: <laughs> no, he didn't. Huh? No, I respect fire, and this I'm sitting here wondering how. Like, I guess firemen learn this stuff because they have to know how to do this.
2: Yeah, yeah. There's a. Uh, I had one guy a year a year or two ago. He was a full time firefighter. He helped me, and he actually. Um, He hadn't done any controlled burns before, but he was really intrigued by it. We were able to get him to do some burns, and and he did some burns himself uh, after helping me out a little
0: bit. Jacob, with about 10 minutes left in your show here this morning, uh, tell us about the other services that uh, uh, Wildlife Management, your company, uh, does. So uh, we've covered fires pretty good, and like I said, we could do a whole show on it, but I want the audience to know... uh, these other services. Uh, this is, you, you've got such a n- unique company here. Uh, at, uh, I want to learn about these other things you provide.
2: I appreciate it. So, some of the other things we do, food plots are a big thing. That's what we're working on right now. Uh, you've kind of got your full season food plots, which is right now September one is kind of your time frame. You want to start getting seed in the ground. That's your clover, wheat, oats, stuff that you're physically sit- hunting during deer season Um, we're working on that right now and uh, it takes a lot of work to do that too if you've got a grown-up field you've got to get it either mowed uh, or get that vegetation down spray it with a herbicide to kill that vegetation take soil samples to know what lime and fertilizer is needed in accordance to what you're planting a lot of people miss that step and it's probably one of the most important ones you can go take a field and get a farmer next door to go disc it up and prep it and make it look as pretty as possible um and plant the most expensive food plot seed on the market in it but if you haven't taken soil samples and know what type of soil you have there and what nutrients are already in that soil and what nutrients are lacking from that soil and your ph uh your lime's going to help adjust your ph to the level that it needs to be and uh your fertilizer, based on those soil reports, are going to tell you how many pounds of nitrogen you need, how many pounds of phosphorus and potassium, your kind of three core nutrients in the soil that have the greatest impact. And so every food plot we do, we, we try to take the approaches if we're doing it ourselves on land that we either own or lease. And uh, so we today I've been taking soil samples of stuff that we're going to be planting in the next week. So food plots, based specifically on, you know, we can go as far as planting something that's good for deer, turkey, and quail. We can plant stuff this time of year that's going to be around all deer season, all winter, and all turkey season, and kind of dies out at the beginning of the summer. We've got stuff we plant that's only around in the summertime um, that's really helping uh, bucks, when their antlers are growing we're putting as much protein natural protein on the property as possible that they can utilize when they're going through the time of the year that they're growing antlers or even those when they're lactating and having fawns they're getting the best protein the best nutrients from what we're growing um you can go put corn out on a shooting land and have deer there but all it's doing is bringing them there which to some people that's all they want and that's fine but if you're wanting to try to manage the healthiest herd and the most deer that you can support on one farm, food plots is a great way to do that on top of controlled fire and uh, timber stand improvement projects. Um, another thing that we do is we help folks, it's kind of ties into food plots, but it's duck and mountains. We, uh, as duck hunters, you can't go put corn out in a swamp like you could uh shoot land for deer you can't put corn out for ducks but you can flood a cornfield for duck hunting and there's a lot of people that do that and uh and we can help folks not only plant those but we can actually help them create those so if if somebody's wanting to potentially have a great duck hunting property Well, we'll be like okay well where are you happy with being if you want to be at the coast we can show you where exactly at the coast is a good area to start at not only is it a good area to start at we can focus where we need to find you a property county or part the areas of that county um, once we focus on that specific part of the state or that part of the world um, we look at the properties available or what properties we can create availability uh, for a duck impoundment. And there's permits that are involved with that process. There's a lot of uh, heavy equipment that are involved in that process, but we can do the whole thing. We can help somebody who has an existing property identify whether we can do a duck impoundment or not. If we can, we can help them create that duck impoundment. Or if somebody just wants to have a great duck hunting property, we can help them, narrow down the areas that they need to be looking. And then once we identify a track and figure out if it's gonna work for an impoundment, we'll help them create that impoundment. Um, we've got some customers that all they care about is quail hunting. They they love bird dogs and, and quail hunting. And uh, some of them want to try to introduce wild quail or, or do what it takes to, to create the opportunity for wild quail on their farm. Some of them just want to have the prettiest place to release quail and hunt them. Um, we've we've helped folks with that. Uh, we do custom deer stands and duck blinds. So I've got uh, I've got a customer has a that is physically handicapped, and he wanted to be able to take his son deer hunting, but their options were very limited because of his situation so we were able to physically build from scratch deer stands and and blinds on the ground that he could take his son deer hunting and turkey hunting and that was probably one of the i, I felt really good at, to be able to do that um because i feel like as a kid the outdoors is a really great tool for life lessons and memories and things that stick with kids throughout their whole life absolutely um
0: you guys also do well, uh pond management too right
2: we'll do some pond management if somebody's got an existing pond that's really grown up and they just can't even physically fish it we can come in there with some heavier equipment some brush cutter style equipment and knock all the vegetation back to where you can walk around the whole thing and throw or cast a rod or if somebody is wanting to build a pond on a property for aesthetic purposes or for trophy bass. We can help them figure out if their property uh, is going to allow that. And if it does, we'll help them do it. Um, Or if they've got a farm they just bought that has a pond that's lime green because it's been used for irrigating tobacco for the last 30 years. And they don't want a stagnant, stinky green pond um, where they want to build their forever home or hunting cabin. We can help them make it to where it's not like that anymore. Uh, through adjustment of pH and some water flow and some aeration and different things. So, this is all stuff that I that I did and it, uh, learned how to do. If there's anything that I can't physically do or don't feel that I have the knowledge to do, I have someone in my phone book that I can plug you in with to help you get the goals that you want on your property done.
0: What a great resource, Jason. No doubt. No. I mean, I've been doing this for 30 years. So I haven't even known about someone like you. Uh, this is incredible. So you do, uh, we only got about three or four minutes left, but you do uh, path roads and systems, tree planting, uh, bridge maintenance uh, for aesthetics, or for uh, to, you know, uh, gate and fence maintenance, snow removal and, and prevention, uh, preservation. Uh, so
2: things that we do is we've got we've got a couple of customers that aren't really hunters or uh, they might have been when they were younger but they just want to have a really pretty farm but they don't want to do all the work that it takes to do that we've got uh, almost a 600 acre farm in Caswell County it's got 120 acres of open pasture on it it's got three ponds on it it's got several houses and uh all they want is the, the place to look as pretty as possible 365 days out of the year and i don't go know there how you... once a week and make sure that with, that it stays <laughs> I, that way
0: you don't know how he does it. i all. don't know how you do all of this well, he's
1: this a young is, guy i mean god you like you you must be busy all the time
2: <laughs> i would say that i am pretty busy all the time um but i also feel like i'm one of those people that when i don't have something to do i just i feel lazy almost but i have a great team i've got three guys that help us out they're wonderful uh two of them are brothers ironically enough um and then like i said earlier christine uh i don't know how she does it because we've got a two-year-old at home and she runs all the paperwork she runs everything that it takes outside of putting boots to the ground as well as doing that some days too uh but she gets up early before jackson wakes up and is on the computer for a couple hours she's on the computer when jackson's asleep and a lot of times when i come home we're on the computer together getting stuff done we're trying to get to a point where this is something we can do as a family and uh and we want to kind of create uh, opportunities for, for Jackson and our family uh, in, in, a, in a healthy way. Do you, only,
1: do you only work state statewide, or do you work statewide, or just your area, or what area do you cover?
2: So that, that farm in Caswell County is as far west as we have gone. Um, I've sold some seed to some people. I'm a, I'm a dealer for Eagle Food Bought Seed, and I've <laughs> sold some seed to folks further west than that. Um, but I would say Yanceyville, Caswell County, west, all the way to the coast. We have some duck impoundments we look after and plant in Hyde County, Lake Mountain Mesquite area. Um, I've got a couple projects that I have worked on in southern Virginia in the past um but most of the time we're here in north carolina it's got to be it's got to be something substantial for us to kind of go that far out but we are willing to do it um i only live about an hour and a half from the virginia line so southern virginia isn't outside of our scope uh, but most of what we do is within an hour and a half of home
0: and you guys can refer to you other contacts around right that's
2: right <laughs> i mean this, yeah. is,
0: this is a national show You know, I'm sure there are other folks out there doing something similar, maybe as well as you are. So uh, I,
2: I helped some folks kind of put together a plan in Kentucky before just kind of looking online. Sure. I never actually went to that property, but just what I saw on aerials, I gave them some ideas.
0: Well, Jacob, you've been an incredible guest today. We're going to have to have you back on because... We're just scratching the surface of yeah. what you do, and it's we're so it's such a refreshing show to learn something totally new. That, I mean, like I said, I've been doing this almost thirty years, and it's uh, uh, tell tell the folks how to get in touch with you, uh, Jacob.
2: You can find us on all the major social media platforms: Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. We also have a great website. Kudos to Christine; she built the website. It's wildflowhabitat.com. You can also find all our contact information on that website. Uh, my email is jlyle, L-Y-L-E, at wildflowhabitat.com. So it is habitat. Would love to help anybody with any kind of land management, wildlife management, or real estate services.
0: Well, <clears throat> thank you so much for a wonderful show. You've been a great guest. Uh, thank you for joining us today. Let us know how you like the show. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to suggest, we'd appreciate them. All questions are welcome, and all of our guests may be emailed with your questions as well. The show is for the public and, most importantly, for real estate agents who do not have a source of land education, free land education here. All of our shows are downloaded after the show this morning on our master website, www.letstalkland.net. It's .net. Also, you'll find us on Spotify and Podbean. Teresa, how do they get in touch with you?
1: They can call me at 336-209-2937 or email me at Teresa.MyLandPro at gmail.com. And my email is Lou,
0: L-O-U at MyLandPro.com. My phone number is 336-669-1405. We'd like to thank our sponsor, LandHub.com. View thousands of properties for sale at landhub.com. Rodney, how do they get in touch with us here? Well, Lou, then go to our website. Go to wkt1090.com and uh, check us out there with all the activities we got coming up. we got a bunch coming up, don't we? Yes, we do. this the season. Tis That's the right. season. Yep. and uh, And um, we have about a 70-mile radius, so uh, if you're outside yep. of that, you can do what? Download Download that. the Simple Radio app. How simple is it? Pretty simple. Just simple radio. Simple app. radio app. Uh, mm-hmm. Download to your tablet or your iPhone, and there you, you can go. pick us up. Punch <coughs> in WKTE and pick us up anywhere in the world. In the world. And we only play what, Teresa?
1: Happy music.
0: That's right. If you like happy music, you want to be happy, mm-hmm. beach music and oldies. Mm-hmm, that's right. And we won some nice awards. Yeah, six years in a row being the top beach and oldies radio station on the East Coast there. Wow. You won a nice award, too. Yeah, the uh, Reader's Choice Announcer of the Year Award. Announcer of the Year. Mm, Wonder why. Hey, thank you for joining us today. We'll see you next week.